Lord, we just come before you. We thank you for this opportunity to look at your word. And for each person that's here, we ask you to guide and lead and help us to understand what we're looking at. We just thank you for your word that you give us guidance. And we ask you to anoint this time to lead us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amos chapter 7, starting at verse 1. It's been a couple of weeks since we've talked about Amos, so we just want to remind everybody, Amos is a prophet to the northern kingdom during the time of Jeroboam II, all right, which is long time past Jeroboam I. Uh, and when you get to Jeroboam's mention in here, we'll talk a little more about Jeroboam, but I just wanted to reiterate where, where we're at with Amos. Uh, he's toward the end of the time for the northern kingdom, and uh, he's prophesying against the northern kingdom, which is the ten tribes to the north that never had a good king ever out of their, a, god, a good godly king anyway. So 7, verse 1. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth, and lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowing. And it came to pass that when they had made an end of eating the grass of the land, then said, I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech you, by whom shall Jacob rise? For he is small, and the Lord repented for this. It shall not be, says the Lord. All right, we're going to stop there. That's the paragraph. So it says, God showed him that he had created or brought grasshoppers to consume the field in the second growth. And makes a big point of this, the second growth, the latter growth, the growth after the king's mowing. And so what this means is the first fruits supposed to belong to God, but it was told, remember, way back in Deuteronomy, God told the people, you're going to ask for a king, and the king's going to take 10% of everything you have. He's going to take the best of your people. He's going to take the best of the, the lands. Well, th what belongs to God eventually gets given to the government. All right? And God told them that's the way it was going to be. When Samuel, when the people went to Samuel and says, we want a king, Samuel repeated back to them the message of Deuteronomy. Here we see it straight even going first. He's not only just taking the tenth, he's taking the best. The first crop, he wants it. What belongs to God, the king wants. And they had no choice in it. There was, you're going to pay your taxes. Taxes have always been paid, and governments are always good about getting their taxes, including ours and every other government out there has always been, for all time that there's been governments, they're good at getting their tax. Because if you don't give them their tax, they take it. And this one is exactly what it is. He says, after that first harvest, the king took it, and then God sent locusts, or grasshoppers in the King James, but locusts, to consume the fields. So the people ended up with nothing. And, you know, I don't know if anybody has been in any place where there's been a swarm of locusts. I've seen it one time in my life, and the locusts really do eat everything that's growing. And they're a pain in the neck because nothing stops them. <laughs> they just keep moving across. And he says, God sent locusts to consume this. This is a judgment. This is, a, during an agrarian society, to lose your harvest was a big deal. And when locusts got done, there was no third harvest out of this, this grain because it was consumed down to the ground. Uh, 
And it says, it came to pass when the locusts were at the end that uh, Amos said, Lord, who shall let Jacob arise? You know, because he is small. And, you know, what he's basically saying is, God, you have totally destroyed this nation. How is it going to rise? And it says, God repented or comforted himself that they had suffered enough. God very rarely takes people all the way to death when he's judging them. Now, if somebody's not going to change, he'll take, he'll take their life. But usually, remember we said this so many times, God's purpose in judgment is to get us to turn to him. His purpose in trials in our life is to get us to turn to him. He's not up in heaven saying, okay, how much, how much pain and, and misery can I put these people through just because I can do so? Now, that's the way a lot of people in the world look at it. Now, why would God do this to me? Well, he wants you to turn to him. Not, that's, you know, but they don't understand that. The sad thing is that Christians don't understand that as a whole. They go, I'm just being miserable. God is up there not liking me for whatever reason. He's trying to hurt me. No, he's trying to say, turn to me. Come to me. And we've said this in the book of Revelation, all the plagues and you know, bowls and vials and, and seals are all designed to get people to turn to God. Now, a lot of people die during that period of time, but the purpose of it is not to kill them. The purpose is to get their attention. And God will do what it takes to get people's attention. And we all know that. He's done things in our lives that, that were pretty hard just to get our attention. And this is what Jake, uh, Jacob, uh, Amos is saying, you know, God, you've almost wiped Jake, you know, Jacob's tribes out. You know, what, how are we going to rise? And God said, okay, and he stopped, which means not everything was consumed. <laughs> he stopped the punishment. And usually what will happen is when we look at God and we say, God, <laughs> uh, I've, I kind of messed up, <laughs> God will stop the punishment. Does that mean there won't be any consequences? No, there's still consequences. David had lots of consequences for his adultery and, and murder, uh, which were both death sentences. God didn't put, impose death upon him, but there were huge consequences to David and to the people of Israel because of his sin. And our consequences sometimes, unfortunately, hurt others maybe more than they hurt us. And that's something we've got to be aware of. I mean, we sometimes think, well, God, I can handle the consequences. You know, I, I will do what this is, and I'm the only one that's going to be affected. No. Other people are always affected by our sin to a greater or lesser degree. And this is something we've got to understand. It's not just us. When we're in the middle of the sin, we just think about how it might hurt us. Maybe we're even thinking about that. Oftentimes, we're not even thinking that far ahead. But if we do stop and think, we're thinking, okay, well, it's just going to hurt me. No big, you know, I'll, I'll put up with whatever the consequences are. But oftentimes, it hurts so many others. And this is what he's saying. God, you've almost destroyed the entire nation. And implication, God, there's a, there's a couple of us that are <laughs> righteous out there. Um, and, you know, God, these are your people. You don't want to totally destroy your people. And it says that God repented. Verse 4, thus hath, thus hath the Lord God showed, me and showed unto me. And behold, the Lord God called 
to contend by fire, and it devoured the deep, great deep, and did eat up a part. Then I said, O Lord God, cease, I beseech you, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small. And the Lord repented of this. This also, this also shall not be, saith the Lord God. So after the locusts, a great fire comes upon them. You know, and this is something, you know, I look at what's going on in our world and our country right now, and I look at all the, the pestilence going on and the fires going on and the crazy weather going on, and I'm going, God, you're trying to get our attention. I go back to the Old Testament and say, God, you've used these all along to grab people's attention, and yet we're not responding. And we're seeing bigger and bigger issues coming along. Fire is going everywhere. You know, last year during the fire season, it seemed like the entire nation was on fire at one point. You know, it was, uh, and big fires, not just little things that burn for long periods of time. And for a rare thing in California, having a, having a town wiped out, which is very rare with our modern day firefighting equipment because they put everything to keep a, you know, a, a uh, town from burning, and yet it burnt. What does it take for God to get people's attention in our day and age? And it's kind of scary. You know, when we think about this, people aren't coming to God, how much worse will things get? And I look at that and go, and God, you know, people need to repent. And his church needs to get busy teaching and, and you know, that people need to repent. There's too many churches out there that aren't saying that sin is sin and that we need to repent. You know, we're looking at this weekend being Resurrection Sunday. We're celebrating the death of Jesus, which we, he died at the beginning of Passover. So, and this is one of those few years where Passover and Resurrection Sunday are the same in the right week. Yesterday was Passover. So we're in this right week. Jesus rose again from the dead on the first Sunday after Passover, which is the celebration of first fruits. He was the first fruit of, res of life and resurrection. And so tomorrow is first fruits. So we're actually celebrating the resurrection on the right day. <laughs> which is very rare because we don't tie resurrection, uh, uh, they don't tie Easter to the right, the right date. They tie it to the solstice uh, because it's celebrating a different God in reality. So we look at this and we say, wow, God, what are you going to do? We've got to turn to you. And when Amos goes, God, you're, you're doing it again. You know. Um, and I wonder sometimes, was God just testing his people? Because he did this with Moses many times. You remember with Moses, the people had sinned, and God says, I'm going to destroy them all, Moses, and start all over with you. And Moses goes, God, you can't do that, because your, te your testimony, God, would be brought, brought to shame. You took the people out, and the people would say that you brought us out, but couldn't take us into the new land. Uh, we see Amos going in and saying, God, you, you're... Are you, are you going just a little too far? Are you going a little too far? You know, maybe he knew some people who repented. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't really go to his excuses and why, why he was looking at this, but it may have been something. God, you, you can't destroy your people. What will the other nations say if you destroy your people? That you couldn't keep them? You were powerful enough to put them there, but you weren't able to keep them in spite of their sin and everything. And there comes a point where God says, enough is enough. 
because he looks at his testimony not at the moment that we look at it. He looks at it for all of eternity. And this is something that we have to be careful of when we look at God because how many times do we try to tell God what he needs to do? You know, have you ever said the prayer, God, I need this and this is how you should happen to do it? You know, uh, I've caught myself doing that on occasions. God, uh, uh, I need this. And I think uh, maybe you can put it on somebody, you know, this person's heart to, to, to help. You know, God very rarely answers those kind, of problems, those kind of prayers. He will do it his way. I don't know what Amos' prayer was. It had to be more than, you know, God, you know, this is not a good place to be. You know, there had to be something more in this prayer behind it. But God was touched and did not bring the people completely out. It wasn't time. It's not their time yet to be wiped out. Now, they're going to be taken out. They're going to be going into captivity with Assyria within just a short time of Amos's prophecies. But there is that time when God says, enough is enough. And I believe that happens even with Christians. If Christians will not repent, will not stand up and follow Christ, I believe he'll take them home. Rather than have them ruin, his, ruin their testimony and his testimony, Okay, you're not going to repent. You're not going to change. You're still saying you're a Christian. You're still lifting up, you know, telling people and you're living this lifestyle and you're not repenting. I believe there comes a time when he just says, okay, you're going to go home. And remember, we've talked about this with Moses. Moses, after he struck the rock, was told you're not entering the promised land. And from that point on, Moses on several places accused the people, I'm not going into the promised land because it's your fault. Because of what you made me do, he never repented for, for his action. All those times he didn't repent. Had he repented, did he I actually believe that he would have. Yeah. I believe that if, if he had repented and changed his heart, he probably would have been able to lead the people in. But if maybe, no, it doesn't really matter, but that's my personal belief is that if he had repented, he probably, but God knew he wasn't going to. And from the scriptures, it, it was very clear that he never did. It's all your guys' fault. He got kind of bitter toward the end. You know, when God told him he's not going in, he got very bitter. And this is the problem when we blame others for our problems. So they, all we do is get bitter. So they didn't have any culpability at all? Oh, yeah, they did. They, they, they were the ones that were sinning. They were the ones murmuring and complaining. But we, but we are responsible for our own actions, whether somebody eggs us on or irritates us so bad that we blow our, blow our top, we are still accountable for our actions. Huh? We, it's human nature to blame others. I mean, right from the very beginning. Yeah. But again, if we keep in mind that we're responsible for our actions, then we can be able to control them more. We can be able to control them more. Uh, you know, blame and pointing the fingers is all the way from the very beginning. Adam and Eve did that. It's somebody else's fault. But as soon as you start blaming others for, for whatever happens to you, then you feel, I have no culpability. I had no, I'm, not, I'm not guilty. It's not my fault. And you never confess. Yeah, why should I change? And you never change. Yeah. You know, it's like, why should I change? It was their fault. If they, just hadn't, if they hadn't been so irritating, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have killed them all. You know? <laughs> Uh, you know, and you, believe me, that's the kind of defense that goes out there. Well, you know, they deserved it. You know, if they hadn't been making so much noise at that party, I wouldn't have gone out and, and blown them all away. 
Uh, no, there's other ways to get around that. There's other things to do. Okay, but yet, and I know I'm picking something very extreme because I don't want to pick on something small and, and make somebody feel really bad about where they're at, but you know, we end up, when we start blaming others, we take no personal responsibility and therefore we never go before God to be changed. And this is important because if we don't have a personal responsibility, we're not going to seek to be changed. Each of these self-help groups that are out there all base it on the right principle. You have to admit that you have a problem. As long as you're trying to blame others for your problem, you won't ever get out of it. It's not until you truly say, I have a problem. Whatever that problem, alcohol, drugs, anger, you know, whatever it might be, you have to first say, I have a problem. And then let God help you by giving you the strength to get out of that problem. But the first step is, I've got a problem. Well, well, it's not natural to do that. It's not human nature to do that. Human nature wants to blame others. Human nature wants to make excuses. And our system of the world is based upon that. Let's find out why you are what you are. We're, you know, we're going to help you dig up why you are what you are, and then we'll try to help you get over it. Well, let's skip the why you are and get over it in the first place. You know, it's no, re- no good to start blaming because then once you started blaming somebody, a hatred starts coming up. It's all your fault. Now you just changed one problem for another problem. Even if it's true, it's still... But it's not true. You're responsible for your own actions. They may have influences to you, but when you start looking at somebody else to blame them, you're not accepting that you're, your culpability. Okay, did they influence? Probably. All of us have influences in our life, but we're still, when we stand before God, we're not going to be able to say, well, you know, God, if my mother and father hadn't done that, and if my wife hadn't done that, and if my, if my business you know, partner hadn't have done that, I wouldn't have done these things. And God's going to say, guilty. <laughs> you know, you are responsible for your own actions. You know, the third of the angels went with Satan, their leader, and they were guilty. They could have been saying, well, we were just following our leader, God. And he says, nope, guilty. You broke the rules. They had a choice. choice. At least at some point in time, they had a choice. Okay. Obviously, at one point, they had some free will. Not anymore, apparently, from what we know. But at some point, they had free will. Just as we, after we die, will not have a free will. We'll have made our choice on earth, and we will be locked into our choice on earth for all of eternity. Now, for us as Christians, that means we'll be getting what we wanted in the first place, so it's not a problem. We will be happy that we can't change our mind and do something that gets us out. Those who go to hell are going to want to get out of their choice, and it's too late. Because once they're in hell, they're going to want to. The rich man, the story of rich man and Lazarus, that guy wanted out real bad. God, I, 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 just, you know, I just want a drop of water. <laughs> you know, let me go home. You know, I just want a drop of water, and I'll be happy. One drop. Okay, can't do that. Well, go warn my brother so they don't end up here where I'm at. When you're getting the consequences, everybody's ready to to change during the consequence. Those are the foxhole conversions. You know, God, I'll do anything for you if you just rescue me from this, this hardship I'm going through, and they don't mean it, and they're not thinking about it. 
you know, and God sends these judgments, and then he'll pull back the judgment when we make our, we make our confession and our repentance. Verse 7, Thus he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made, made by a plumb line, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what see you? And I said, a plumb line. And then said the Lord, behold, I set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them anymore. And let the high places of Isaac, and the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. All right. Picture here God standing by a wall with a plumb line. Now, those who have plumb lines know that it's a construction tool. Uh, it is a line with a weight at the bottom that is drawn toward technically the center of gravity and it's parallel with the, with the earth, uh, as long as you're on a flat, <laughs> flat piece of earth. Uh, or not parallel, perpendicular to the earth as long as you're on a flat. <laughs> flat piece of earth. Uh, but it's always drawn straight down. And they use it to make sure the walls of buildings are exactly vertical to the, you know, and not slanted anyway. And God is seen here holding a plumb line. He says, I have a standard. And he's, and he's holding it up there and it says, you know, and Amos sees him with his plumb line. And God says, Behold, I have set a plumb line in the midst of my people. I will not pass by them anymore. I will not be among them. Why? Because they weren't living up to the plumb line. Now, what is the plumb line for us as Christians? Is the scriptures. God tells us what he expects. This is the wonderful thing about our God. He has given us a book that is very clear as to what he expects. And... For us as Christians, the thing that sets Christianity apart from every other religion out there is we can do nothing to earn heaven. God says we're guilty. He has to do it. The plumb line shows us that we are guilty. We cannot do it. We know what God expects and we can't do it. Every other religion out there boils down to one thing. Do enough good works and you enter into heaven. Whether it's by reincarnation where you keep coming back a zillion times until you get it right, you know, which is their great hope. You know, if, I do it a, if I do it a million times, I'll finally get it right and go to, go to heaven or nirvana or whatever else they, they're trying to go. Or something like Judaism is in this day and age or the Muslim faith hoping that you've done enough good to earn heaven when you die. How would you like to live that way? Well, uh, did I do enough good today to be, be able to enter heaven? Have I made up for all those years that I wasn't following him? Have I made up for those yet? To never know whether you've done enough good. When the Bible tells us the answer is no. You haven't done enough good. Because one sin is enough to keep us away from God. This is what separates us as Christians from the rest of the world. The rest of the world might do good things. They might even be better than the average Christian from a human point of view. Right? They're giving away 90% 90, 90 of all they, they earn. They, they're feeding, feeding everybody they can. They're 
you know, running people to a hospital, doing all these great things, and they'll still go to hell without Jesus Christ. And they may make the average Christian look, look like a loser, you know, a miserable person. But it's for us, the fortunate thing is it's all about Christ. What did Christ do? He died on a cr the cross, became sin for mankind. And we've got to understand, when Jesus was on the cross, he took the sin of the world upon him. Not just those who were going to follow him. He took the sins of the world upon him. There's only one thing that will send people to hell right now, and that is to reject Jesus Christ. Now, will there be something, punishment for the sins that they committed? I'm not even going to get into that. We get you into Dante's Inferno and the, the levels of hell and all these things. It would make some sense, but yet, by the same token, Jesus paid for it. Right now, there's only one sin, and that's to reject him. You know, yes, there's all these other things that make us guilty, that keep us from going to heaven, but Jesus paid for them. So the big one right now is, what are you going to do with Jesus? You know, are you going to say, God, I need you, <laughs> in other words? And that's really what it comes down to. God, I can't make it on my own. I need you to do something. And he says, I've done it. My son died for you welcome. And this is the important thing. We come to a place where we repent, turn away from our sins, but we start with just recognizing our need. I need you. God, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. I need you. And we come to him and he clothes us in the righteousness of Christ. I am more and more starting to be amazed at how God sees us. You know, God sees us as we will be at the end. And he sees us that way now. That to me is so amazing. God does not see the imperfect me. And quite frankly, he never did from the moment that I said, you know, asked him into my heart. He saw me clothed in the righteousness of Christ in my glorified state that I will be when I die. What an amazing way of thinking, the more we realize that, the more we start treating each other differently. Because when we're talking with other Christians, we're talking to somebody who is seen by God as perfect and glorified. You know, and he doesn't take it very well when we criticize one another. You know, it's the same thing with, you know, in a really close family, close-knit family, it doesn't matter how much they might fight and argue and, and not get along, but you know the brothers who will fight like, dog, you know, like cats and dogs at, at home will not let somebody else pick on their brother. Uh, they won't let anybody pick on their sister. You know? uh, imagine how God is. He's that indignant when we start attacking other Christians. And this is why it's so important. You know, it doesn't matter whether another Christian believes like we do or doesn't believe like we do because ultimately... The only thing that matters is that I love them for now and because they're going to stand or fall before God. You know, and I'm going to stand and fall before God. And if I disagree with a brother at some, some point, one of us may or may not be right when we stand before God, but both of us have to give our answer to God. And it might be, well, why did you, you, know, why did you even believe that? That was, that was crazy. And the other one, okay, you did good on that point, but this other point you were a little off on. Why? 
We stand if we fall before God. When we stand before God, we're going to have to give him the reasons. Most of us will probably just stand there with our mouth shut and not having a reason. Which is why I teach us we need to get into God's word and know what we believe and why. So we go, God, this, was, this, is, what I, this is how I took this verse. At least we'd have some defense. It may or may not be a valid defense, but God, I, you know, this is why I taught this. I go this verse, this verse, this verse, and this verse. He goes, well, you probably should have considered these other verses. But at least I'm able to defend what I would have. And it's much easier to be able to go, okay, I understand what you did. And that's what I used to tell managers all the time when I was training. I don't care what you do, but tell me why you made the decision. We can work on your decision making, but don't ever tell me I have no idea what I just responded. You know, tell me why. You know, worst decision in the world, but if they could tell me why they made it, <laughs> It was like, okay, I'm still not happy you made that decision, but here's how you can make a better one later on. And that is what happens when we understand what we believe and why. We can at least tell why. And God can then say, okay, well, maybe we want to learn some other verses. <laughs> maybe some other points. Because I don't believe anyone, any Christian out there, no matter how well studied they are, is going to understand the Bible 100%. And this is why I teach all of you all, I want good Bereans. I want people who go back and search the scriptures. That's what Paul's praise to the Bereans were. I taught you and you went back to check what I, what I taught you. you know, now we go to Paul's book <laughs> to find out, you know, uh, but we search the scriptures. And this is an important thing for us. How well do we know what we believe and why? You know, do we, we're coming into the resurrection, do we really believe that Jesus died? Hopefully all of us do. You know, but a lot of can we defend why we know he died? The Bible is full of the proofs of why he died and how we know that, that he died. One of the greatest one is the spear that was thrust up on his side and produced water and blood that had already separated. And the pathologists tell us that's a symbol that he had died. He had lost so much blood that, that it had died. So we know that he was dead. We know he was resurrected because there's all kinds of proofs of his resurrection. You know, it, it's not even a faith statement to believe that he rose from the dead if you do the study. Now, technically, I guess it's faith because we weren't there to see it, but the faith is so, so small that it's really not even a faith statement to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. There's so many proofs out there that are, that are very strong, given in the scriptures and in, even in history. So we look and go, why do we believe? What do I believe and why? The plumb line. God puts a plumb line out there. And he says, how do you measure up? Is your wall straight yet? Or are you, or are you at 45 degrees? Get that wall up. <laughs> you know, get that wall. You know, yes, it's zigzagging. You know, if you've got, oh, you're good here, you're good here. But boy, that one's way off there. Get that billboard nailed in. Uh, but he puts a plumb line for us to compare our life to. The scriptures. We don't have to guess what God wants. Can you imagine what it would be like trying to guess what God wants? Well, God, you know, uh, how, do I, well, how do I make this decision? You don't give me any guidance. You know, I, I'm going I'm to do things this way. All we're doing is saying, I'm God. We have a whole world full of people who are saying, I'm God. Well, I don't really like the rules of the Bible, so I'm going to make up my own, and, and they're good. I'm a good person based on my rules, which you probably can't even keep your own rules, but skip that for a moment. <laughs> Their rules don't line up to God's rules. 
When we try to do it in our own life, our rules don't match up to God's rules usually. And yet we're going, yeah, I'm doing a really good job. Good job, God. I told 80% of the truth. I'm, I'm not a liar. You know, uh, I just didn't tell him a few things. I, I didn't get myself in trouble by not telling him a few things. You know, I told my kids the same thing my dad told me. You know, even if you don't say it, you've lied. <laughs> you know, if you didn't, if you left out important facts, you've lied. And we see all these kind of reports all the time. You know, where somebody leaves out just a few facts. Yeah, you know, just a few facts. You know, well, I was the one that got them really close to the curve. I didn't actually push them over, but. I put them on the gravelly slope that was 60 degrees down the cliff. Uh, you know, but I didn't push them. Uh, you know, I just led them too close to the cliff. But you know, we need to be so careful. Does our life match up to God's plumb line? And not comparing it to our own plumb line, which is usually a crooked ruler that matches up to whatever we want our life to be. And God say, no, I've got a straight line. Straight is the path to God, not crooked and zigzagged and everything. Now, he will get us there as we get, get off the track. He'll pull us back. He will recover those poor times. He will do all of those things. But God is going to lead us by that plumb line. And he says he's not going to come by his people. He says the high places of Isaac are desolate. The sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid west, and I shall come against the house of Jeroboam with the sword. Now you have to understand that this particular reference to Israel is not Israel as the entire nation. This is Israel, the, nor the ten northern kingdoms. Now in 2 Kings chapter 12, the kingdom split between two. Solomon had passed away. And Solomon was a great leader. The people came to Solomon's son, Rehoboam, and they said, you know, would you please reduce our taxes? Your dad has basically taxed us to death. And Jeroboam went to the advisors that were with Solomon, and the Solomon's advisors told Rehoboam, that would be a really good idea. That would show the people, you know, a good, you know that you care about them, and, and the taxes are pretty high. Well, Rehoboam decided to talk to his friends his young power-crazed friends who are now being raised up as leaders. They advised him, well, you tell the people, you think my father was bad? Wait till, you know, his, 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 uh, the weight of my finger will be like his thigh. <laughs> okay, so basically he says, I'm increasing your taxes. You dared to ask for a decrease, I'm increasing them. And the people rebelled. The 10 tribe, northern tribes rebelled, and Jeroboam I became their king. Now, of course, he wasn't Jeroboam the first because he hadn't had this <laughs> descendant of his to be Jeroboam the second. But Jeroboam came, became king of the ten tribes. He decided that he didn't want the Jewish people in his kingdom to go to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices twice, uh, four times a year like they were supposed to. So he built golden calves and he put one in Bethel and one in Dan, one on each side of the kingdom. And he instituted golden calf worship for the northern kingdom. So when it talks about Israel's high places and Israel's sanctuaries, he's not talking about places for God. He's talking about 
golden calf worship, and other worship. Because in the high places was usually Astoroth worship, where they would carve the totem into the wood and, and have orgies in their worship services. Uh, so he's saying God is going to destroy your worship places. God is angry with Israel, the northern kingdoms, because of their sins with idolatry and everything that goes along with the idolatry. So here he's basically pointing back into a little bit of the history of this, of this nation. This nation has not followed God. They've never had a righteous king. The entire time the northern kingdoms were in reign, they never had a righteous king to bring them back to God. Now the southern kingdom had lots of righteous kings and lots of bad kings. Okay, they, they kind of went back and forth between good kings and bad kings. More bad kings than good, but they, they had some good kings to bring back righteousness. The northern kingdom never had a good righteous king. They have been in idolatry the whole time. And by the, by the time Amos is coming along, there's not a whole lot of followers of God in the northern kingdom. They are so steeped in their, in their, in their worldly visions. Kind of where we are in our country right now. We're getting so far from God that we've got a lot of people who have no clue what it means to follow God. Even people who will name the name of Christ have no, no clue what it means to follow him. And our world is getting far away. Can there be a revival? Absolutely there can be a revival. Will there be? I don't know. If there is a revival, it's going to start in God's churches, and we're watching the churches you know, drift further and further away from God, and it's not a good sign. Not a good sign when Christian churches, so-called, drift away from God and no longer preach his word and teach his word. And we're getting into being a remnant in this world of Christianity. Can it change? Absolutely. The, the, the 12 disciples, and well, 500 disciples probably when you take them all, turned the world upside down for Christ. Changed it completely. And it was a dark, dark world then. You know, the ideas that we grew up with weren't even thought about. We're not as dark as the, the world was at that point. There's still room for revival. We're not that dark. You know, we talk about it being dark, and it is dark compared to what it was just a you know, even 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago, you know, a century ago, you know, two centuries ago, our country had light. And we are darker than it used to be. But we are not close to being as dark as the Roman Empire was during that, during that reign. Um, remember last night, we were, uh, or Wednesday night, we were talking about David finding the Egyptian who was just left to die. Just got sick, and they left him to die with no food. That was normal in those days. That was normal before Jesus Christ. For the last 2,000 years, we've been living in a very abnormal world that loves people, cares for people, has a light that says we should be caring for people. Hospitals, orphanages, you know, uh, food banks, all these different things weren't back in the days before Jesus. It was like, who cares? You know, they're not strong enough to live, let them die. That was the attitude. We're getting awfully close to that. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer and closer to that, that attitude. We are getting darker. There's still room, though, for a revival. And even if it was totally dark, there's still room for a revival. You know, the original disciples could bring a, change the world. We could change the world. Do I expect 
that kind of a change. Not particularly. It seems like we're too close to the end times, but it could happen. And I'm praying for revival, and I'm going to do everything we can to get a revival. Now, I don't know what chloride can do to get a revival, but we'll start in chloride. <laughs> we'll start in Moho you know, northern Mojave County. We'll, we'll start whatever we can for a revival. Why? Because it starts with his church. It starts with his people. If my people who are called by my name shall, re you know, shall repent and call upon my name, I will hear, says God. It starts with us. We live lives that are changed and that light shines. And the good news for us is the darker the world is, the brighter our light shines out. All right? Now it also brings tribulation and trials and trouble because that light is shining out. But it shines bright. When we have a standard and people look at it and go, and, you know, and I like, you know, joke about it, but it really is. They, they think we're weird. You, know, you, you believe what? You, you think what? How, you, you think that all things work together for good? You guys are nuts. And, and, you know, it's all bad. Wow, what a depressing way to live. Everything's bad. Nothing has a good, good end to it. And that's where the world's belief will end up. But it says that the house of Jeroboam is going to die. He's going to rise against the, the house of Jeroboam. And this is Jeroboam the second that he's talking about, not Jeroboam the first. Uh, and then in verse 10, then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amoth has conspired against you in the midst of the house of Israel, and the land is not able to bear his words. For thus Amos said, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. Also Amaziah said unto Amos, O you seer, go, flee you away into the land of Judah, and there eat bread and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. All right, so we have somebody called Amaziah, who is the priest of Bethel. Now, remember what I just said about Bethel. What's, what goes on in Bethel? It's one of the two places that the golden calf has been set up. This priest is not a priest of God. Okay? He is a priest in the worship of the golden calf. And we know that because of where he is, is a priest in the time that he is a priest. Okay? So we, we know that he is a priest for the golden calf, and it says, he goes to Jeroboam and said, you need to get rid of this Amos guy. He's, uh, he's a traitor. You know, matter of fact, he's, he's telling everybody that you're going to die. Now, to tell the king, say that the king is going to die is the same thing as in, if we in America were to say the president is going to die tomorrow. It would draw attention from every single Secret Service person, and you would be looked over and checked over and and are you making a trip to, you know, Washington, D.C., or wherever the president's at that day, you know, on that day? And, you know, nothing new under the sun. Amos has said the king's going to die. And they're looking to say, okay, well, we know that he's a prophet, but uh, is he going to try to make this thing happen? He is now under the scrutiny. You know, this priest is going to the king and saying, uh, get, the, get the secret service out there to look at, look at this Amos guy. You know, he, he's threatening you. <laughs> 
right? And they're just bringing this down to what it is. I mean, this is the statement that's going on. And in our day and age, if you were to say something against the president or the vice president or the governor or anybody you know, important, you would immediately be suspect and checked out. That's what's happening here. Amos is say, uh, 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 Amaziah is saying, uh, King, uh, this Amos guy, he's stirring up trouble. He says, you're going to die. And he says, we're going into captivity. He's a traitor. Okay, he's not speaking good of our nation. And in reality, as far as they were concerned, he was a traitor. He was speaking God's word, but he was, for all practical purposes, somebody that was going to be a troublemaker. It weakens the heart of the people when, when, the lead, when certain leaders say, well, it, you know, it, you know, you're going to about this wrong way. You're going to die anyway, so just don't don't fight. And that's something government, you know, attackers will often try to do is put, you know, plant these propaganda in people's mind. Ah, you're going to die anyway. Just surrender. And this is kind of where Amos is being accused of. Now he's just speaking God's word. How many times do we, though, as Christians, get attacked for just this kind of stuff? Yeah. You're not politically correct. You're not, you're not saying what needs to be said. You're stirring up trouble. You know, we're all happy going into you know, all these sexual perver perversions. You know, it's not a problem. You're just the one that cares. You know, get, you know, go someplace else. You, know, you, don't believe in that? you don't believe in what I'm doing? Just you know, go someplace else. Stay silent. Believe what you want, but just go stand in a corner and believe what you want with your friends and leave us alone. This is what Amos is being told to do. Just, you know, you can believe what you want, but just go, go somewhere else. And that's exactly what he said. You know, he, uh, Amaziah tells Amos, go to Judah. You know, they're, they're followers of your God in Judah. Go, go to Judah. You know, go tell them anything you want, but just stay out, you know, keep your mouth shut here. This is what we as Christians are being told in our world today. We've taught, you know, we look at this, and one of the things that's happening in America right now is they're redefining the freedom of, worship, uh, of religion into the freedom of worship. Okay, and there's a slight difference between that. When you listen to the TV and listen to the, the, the liberals talk, they want to tell us that we have freedom of worship, which means you can do anything you want in your church, but leave it in your church. You don't have freedom of religion to bring you what you believe into your daily life. Christian. Well, and it, really, they want it everywhere. Really, they wanted it, but specifically Christian. But the whole thing is, you know, say what you want in your churches, your synagogues, your mosques. You know, you can say whatever you want in there, but just don't take it out of the four walls of the, those buildings. Because that's what they want, because they know that we're not going to agree with what they want. So they are re trying very hard to redefine what our freedom is. It's not the freedom of religion, which means I can live the way I am convicted I'm supposed to live. It is, you can do what you want in your churches, but leave it there. Don't tell the homosexual that they're committing sin. Don't take, tell the person who's living in adultery they're living in sin. Don't tell the person who's, who's a habitual liar that they're, living, that they're sinning. You know, just say what you want in your churches, but don't, don't drag what you believe out. If this works, we're going to see all kinds of persecution against Christians particularly, because we, you know, and we think, why are Christians the target? Because we're the ones that are following God. All the other religions are created by Satan that lead away from God, so he doesn't care whether they even have weird beliefs that are taken out in the world. He wants those weird beliefs taken out into the world. The pressure will always be on Christianity and Judaism. 
And we've told you the why on Judaism. Judaism is the target of Satan because if he can destroy Israel, he can eliminate the prophecies that says Israel is the center of everything during the tribulation and the millennial kingdom. So they will always be the target of Satan because he's trying to destroy them and God's not going to let them. We as Christians will be the target because we have God's message and his gospel that we're presenting to people. And we're telling people they're a sinner. Now, we're, we're losing the battle right now. We're, we keep getting darker and darker. But imagine how dark it would be if it wasn't for true Christians saying, no, this is wrong. You know, we lost, we've lost, we apparently lost the battle for, against homosexuality. We're abortion. We're losing the battle against euthanasia. We're losing the battle against the whole other sexual perversions that are working their way through the court system. You know, but what would it be if we weren't here? If we weren't here to say, no, it's wrong, and make them fight, make them fight for everything they want you know, that they're trying to get, we'd be the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the Egyptian Empire, all the previous empires out there that, that darkness and, and, and lust and everything prevailed. The rapture will come and the church will be removed and it'll get dark very fast. You know, I can almost hear the, the people rejoicing, oh, those crazy Christians are not here to tell us it's wrong anymore. We can do what we want. You know, or they may not even use the word Christian. All those crazy people who said that we were wrong are gone. We can do what we want now. Yeah, they kept coughing about sin and how this was wrong, but I wanted to do it, so now I can do it. Nobody, nobody's going to tell me I'm wrong. You know, they'll be rejoicing in the streets. There might be some panic at first when millions of people leave until they realize it's those people they didn't want around anyway. The people that made them uncomfortable. Then they'll be rejoicing in the streets. You, know, you remember when the, when the prophets are killed, the two prophets that were killed in Revelation, it says the people celebrated and gave gifts to one another. It was a national holiday. Oh, they're dead. Here, have a... Yeah, I can't even imagine partying over something like that, but Okay, these guys that have been telling us we're wrong are dead. <laughs> let's have a party. You know, when the church is raptured, there's going to be that, let's have a party. These people that kept telling us we're wrong are gone. There's nobody telling us we're wrong anymore. We can do what we want. Well, there's, there's the good things that we were doing for them, too, that they're going to lose. But can you imagine what it will possibly be like in the tribulation period when everybody is doing what they want to do with no restrictions? No, nobody out there saying what you're doing is wrong. They're just doing what they want to do, whatever they think is right. The violence in this world, we think it's violent now. We think it's bad now. You know, it'll be the ultimate end of you know, might makes right. If you're strong enough to make it happen, you can make it happen until somebody stronger comes along and takes it away from you. And that's the person who's weak and pathetic will be abused or killed or made to be slaves of those who are strong until somebody stronger comes along to take it away from them. It's going to be a miserable world to live in. And this is what... Amaziah, Amaziah says, you know, hey, get out of here, go, leave, you know, go, go back to Judah, say what you want, but quit prophesying here at Bethel. <laughs> okay. 
Uh, and Bethel's really close to Judah, okay? It, it's the next town over. It's a, it was on the main road between the northern kingdom and Jerusalem, which is why he put it in Bethel, so that people could stop it at Bethel when they were supposed to be going to Jerusalem. Uh, and that was just, and Jeroboam the first, that was his whole thing. I can't have my people going to Jerusalem because eventually they might decide to follow God and want to become one nation again. So he started a whole other religion to try to keep people from going back to Jerusalem. And God's saying, it's going to be judged. And here this Amaziah, you know, the, the prophet of the golden calf is saying, you know, hey, you know, get out of here. You know, go anywhere. You know, uh, obviously, he did not have the power to execute him. Otherwise, he would have. That's implicit in here. If I could kill you, I would, but, you know, just get out of here. Verse 14. Then answered Amos and said to Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was an herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as a follower, as I followed the flock, and the Lord said unto me, Go prophesy unto my people Israel. Now therefore hear the word of the Lord, you, you say, prophesy not against Israel, and drop not your word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city, and your sons and daughters shall fall by the sword, and your land shall be divided by line, and you shall die in a polluted land, and Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. All right. So Amaziah has a word for, uh, Amos has a word for Amaziah. Uh, he goes, you know, you think I'm somebody special? I'm nobody. And I love the, this, his attitude on this. He goes, I was, I was nothing but a herd man. I used to, you know, herd animals and gather the fruit of the sycamore trees. He goes, I'm a nobody. I'm just, you know, I was out there doing my, doing my thing. Almost every Christian can say the same thing. Amos was going even further. He goes, you're calling me a prophet. I'm, you know, I'm not trained as a prophet. My dad wasn't a prophet. I just, I did these things. And I, I kind of think it's funny when somebody says, you know, well, my dad was a pastor or my dad was, you know, a deacon in the church. And my answer is always, so what? You know, so what? It means that you were in church. Are you a follower of God? I, I've loved it when I witness somebody and I go, well, are you a believer in Jesus Christ and are you following him? And they go, well, my dad was a pastor. And my grandfather was a pastor. I'm going, and? <laughs> what are you? God has no grandchildren is a famous statement that is out there. He only has children. We are not his grandchildren or great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren. We are either his child or we're not. And so Amos is saying, you know, hey, I'm a nobody. I was just, a, I was just out there taking care of my animals, doing my, doing my work. And it says, the Lord took me as I followed the flock and said, go prophesy to my people Israel. So Amaziah, you're telling me to shut up. God told me to speak. I think, I'll follow, I, think I will obey God. He's almost saying exactly what the disciples said. You know, uh, you've told me not to speak, but we need to obey God rather than men. And this is something we have to be, because we're going to stand before God. And we're going to give an account before God. And if we go, God, you know, I was just so afraid that they were going to kill me. God's going to say, okay, so now you get to go to hell. Or now you've lost a lot of rewards if, you're, if you really are a Christian. You know, our fear needs to be of God, not of man. And uh, 
Amos is basically saying, you know, God told me to do this. He goes, now therefore here. <laughs> now he's getting really bold. <laughs> you say, prophesy not against Israel and drop not your word against the house of Isaac. He goes, you're telling me not to do this? Go, all right. And this is kind of a play on words. He goes, you've told me not to prophesy against a Israel, so now I've got a prophecy against you directly, Amaziah. <laughs> now, this is not to be, you know, overlooked. He's almost playing, okay, I'm going to do just what you said. I'm not going to say another, right now, I'm not going to say another word about to Israel, but I'm going to talk to you directly, Amaziah. And this word is pretty harsh. He says, therefore, thus saith the Lord, your wife shall be a harlot in the city. And the way this reads is not by choice. Okay, when the city is conquered, your wife is going to be raped and abused by the soldiers. And this is what Assyria did. It took the women and made them into wives and concubines of a conquered city. And it says, your sons and your daughters are going to die. And the implication is you're not going to be able to do anything about it. You are going to be powerless to, to save anybody. And it says, your, your land will be divided by line or by the enemy. And you will live in a polluted land. Israel considered any part of the land taken over by an enemy to be polluted uh, because it was not being run by them, you know, the followers of the one true God, which the northern kingdom wasn't following the, wasn't following the one true God. But the strange thing was they still maintained that the land was given to them by God, that they're not following, that they're not worshiping, that they're not obeying because they're worshiping the golden calf. Now, they held parts of Judaism and, and stuff in there, even though they're worshiping the golden calf. Again, it's kind of like our time where people are holding on to little bits and pieces of what God says, but not willing to put their whole trust in him. Uh, and this is, you know, it's called, you know, we've talked about this, it's called in our day and age designer religion. Okay, I like this part of Christianity, I like this part of Buddha, I like this part of the Muslims, I like this part of Krishna, and you put them all together and you created your own religion. Well, that works if we are God. And that's basically what it's saying. I am God. I get to choose how I want to live. And I've said this so many times. I have, even though they're wrong, I have more respect for somebody who truly follows Buddhism or Hinduism or, or Mohammedism because at least they're committing to something that is, and they're trying to follow it. Now, they're still headed to hell, but I have more respect for them than the people that are trying to piece together all their different religions and put together what they want to follow. And you know, the worst thing about it is it's mostly people that claim to be Christians that do that. The followers of these other religions are pretty happy, and Satan is really happy about having them follow because, again, they go, they're headed to hell following those religions. Christianity goes, okay, well, you know, I can't keep you from being a Christian, but let's add some other, you know, pick and choose what you want to believe. You know, it'll be okay. You, know, you, you don't like this idea that that's a sin. Don't, you know, just cast it away and pick something else. And the sad thing is how many people do that? Well, I think I'll believe this. I won't believe that. I'll believe this. I won't believe that. And we need to be very careful about that. That's one of the great advantages of going, as we teach here, line upon line. We're going to touch on everything the Bible says. 
and have to deal with what it says. We're not picking and choosing what we want to believe and don't want to believe. We're going to go, well, this is a tough one for us. You know, but it is what it says. And we'll follow, follow through with it. And we want to look at this. Amos gives a very hard, okay, Amaziah, you want to tell me, you, you're acting as a prophet for the golden calf. Here's, here's God's word to you. Here's God's word to you. You're going into, you and your people are going into captivity. Your wife is going to be brutally used. Your kids are going to die. And you're, not, and you're going to live in a land that you're not going to want to live in. Now, how would you like that being your, your, your prophecy? <laughs> Uh, now, granted, he's on the wrong side, and he's not going to, you know, it's going to stick in the back of his mind, even though he's technically not going to believe it. You know, everything Amos has been saying is coming true, and Amos is talking for God. But he's not a follower of God, so he's going to kind of put it on the back burner. What does our world do when we speak? Kind of put it on the back burner. But the good news for us, and I've shared this with you, we need to share the gospel. Not sit there and argue with somebody, not try to convince them of it, just share. Because God's word does not return void. And if you argue with them, they remember the argument. If you just share God's word, at some point they'll remember God's word. Might be that night, might be the next month, might be the next year, might be 10 years. But at some point, they'll remember. Yeah. And they go, wow, what if that person's true? What if, what, the, what if that person, what they said was true? You know, and be able to go forward from there. We just lift up God. We're a light for God. We shine with God. And as we, we talked about the other day, we, we give our testimony. What has God done for me? Nobody can argue with your testimony. Now, you tell them how God has changed you. They might not believe it, but that doesn't matter. It's your testimony. You know what happened. Share what God has done for you. Share how God has changed you. And be able to just let people work with that. And let the Holy Spirit marinate, their, marinate in their heart his word, your testimonies. And watch what God will do. People will get saved eventually. You may not even know it. You may not even know the impact you had on somebody's life. Because if you think back to when you got saved and before you were saved, how many people in your life influenced you and you've never told them you know, they, they influenced you in your decision for Christ they won't know until they get to heaven and God will show them see right there you, you had a part in this person's life well I know you didn't know about it but here's your reward because you were faithful faithful in a little faithful in just a little you know, and we really need to be able to understand that God is loving us and he's going to reward us for the little things we do. I almost picture God in heaven looking for, okay, what, what can I give them? What, what reward can I give them? Oh, they did a little thing. Okay, reward. It wasn't a big thing. Okay, well, you, you made the right decision. Here, here's a reward. You know, God is not up there looking at, you know, how bad can I treat them? How mean can I be to them? You know, I'm only going to reward the big things. When I first started being a manager, that was my hardest thing, you know, was trying to reward the, you know, saying nice things about the little things. Because my attitude was they got a paycheck. <laughs> you know, they did what I expected them to do. I, you know, why should I say thank you for, for coming in, you know, showing up on time? You know, uh, that's what I expected. That's, how they, that's why they've got a job, you know, but I learned over time 
reward even the little things. And then people start doing bigger things. Well, man, they notice that. Maybe, maybe they'll really notice when I step out and do something bigger. God's the same way with us. He rewards the little decisions, which gives us the confidence to make bigger decisions and bigger challenges with them and say, God, oh, all right, I'm going to step out. You know, God loved me on that one. Let's, let's try something big. And God says, oh, good. Look at this child of mine stepping out. For a good parent, that's how we look at our children. All right, look, my child has done this. Oh, wow, look. Well, I wasn't so happy with that decision, but, you know, let's get back on the right track, kid. Wow, you, you did that? And the kids are always right there looking at, uh, you know, as a little child. Look at my picture, Mommy, Daddy. Bunch of scribbles. Oh, wonderful job. You know, and then they get real famous, and they painted stuff sitting in the museum. Wow, you did a really good job. <laughs> you know, God is looking at that for our reward. Well, let's close in prayer. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your opportunity to come before you. Lord, we ask you to help us make good decisions. Help us to not stay silent when you ask us to speak. Help us to move forward and be your lights. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.